If you have a copy of Scripture, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 23 through 25 this morning. We use that um, kind of as our launching for the for the sermon this morning. As I have uh, said throughout this series, this is a little bit different as we typically don't do topical messages, but um, as we are, are talking about a topic, being a healthy church, we have um, set aside time to uh, do more, more of a topical series here um, in these weeks. And so um, this morning, we're going to talk about, you know, what it means to be a member of a church or what that, that should look like. In order to do that, we're going to look at Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. We'll also look at several other passages of Scripture, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. <clears throat> Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. People today seem afraid of being committed to anything. Um, there is such a thing as commitment phobia, which is the fear that in promising to do something good, we will miss out on getting something that's even better. And so what happens is we'll see um, many good things that we could be doing, but we instead want to just keep our options open. And this presents a problem sometimes for the Christian because our call is to follow Christ and Christ said that if we are to follow him, then we must take up our cross. And that certainly doesn't mean that we leave our options open, but indeed it's this radical commitment to Jesus. Now add to this the idea that many people feel no need to ever depend on someone else because why would we want to depend on someone else for what we can do ourselves? So why do we need to bring others in on it? Um, that would only burden them or possibly burden us. So it's just far easier for us to do it alone. So co combine commitment phobia with this idea that we can just do everything ourselves, and we end up with a culture that's hostile to New Testament Christianity and one that is certainly not comfortable with becoming a member of a church. Why be a member of a church? It seems counterproductive. It seems elitist and maybe even unfriendly to t say to someone, I'm in and you're out. I mean, after all, shouldn't our only concern be the salvation of others and not whether people are members of our church or not? But let me tell you what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that if we genuinely get membership right, we will see our churches revitalized and we will see them be more evangelistic and they will further the cause of Christ around the world and bring glory to God. The average SBC church, Southern Baptist Convention Church, has an inflated membership. One study showed the typical Southern 
Baptist Church has 176 members, 69 of whom are present on a typical Sunday morning worship service. So 176 members, 69 in church. What about our church? Let's use our church for an example. We're not far off the average. Our church membership, 180. Our average attendance, 64. Where are all of the members? Are they all sick? Are they military families? Are they on permanent vacation? Where's the 120 other people that are members of our church? I wonder what our churches convey about the importance of Christianity with such alarming statistics. What are we saying about the importance of Christianity in our lives? And I wonder, what is the spiritual state of those people that don't attend the church? They haven't attended the church in months, some in years, but are still considered members of the church. If they don't come to church, is it any of our business? Should we really be concerned with people that are members, but they don't ever show up? In this message, we're going to answer three questions that I will hope help us rethink what it means to be a member of a church. Question one, what is a church? Question two, why join a church? Question three, what does membership entail? So first, what is a church? What is a church? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What is a church? Have you ever heard someone talk about a Buddhist church or a Jewish church? Odds are no, because they don't exist. There's a reason for that. Church is really a Christian word. It does not mean a building, and the church is only a building in a secondary sense because the building is simply where the church meets. And so, so where we are in this building, this is just simply where we meet. In fact, the Puritans often called the church the meeting house because they looked like large houses from the outside, and this is where the church met. According to the New Testament, the church is a body of people who profess and give evidence that they have been saved by God's grace alone, for God's glory alone, and through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is what the New Testament meant by church. It's, it's not a building. The early Christians did not have buildings for nearly 300 years. Astonishing. The church had already started. And then 300 years later, they have their first building. A church is a local collection of people that are committed to Christ. They regularly assemble and have his word preached, and they obey it, including Christ's commands to baptize and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The overwhelming majority of the references to the church in the New Testament are to a local, living, and loving collection of people who are committed to Christ and committed to one another. This is what the church means over and over again in the New Testament. It is a body from which you can be excluded and which therefore you can be included. So here's a consideration. If there is no way to be excluded from the local church... Perhaps it's because we have not included people 
as the Bible intends. The idea of the church is to be a covenanted, covenanted community of believers and not just tied to a particular locality. The church is not meant to be for everyone. By physical, natural descent, or by being a citizen of a particular nation. All are welcome to attend. The New Testament clearly teaches that the church in its purpose and membership is for believers who join together in a covenanted community. We do not desire to have an established church in America. But, but what we do desire is to see our nation evangelized through the church and that that the church is allowed to freely cooperate as believers in Christ that's our desire in fact if we read about the early churches in the book of acts we will find no evidence that any of them meant to have any anyone other than believers as members of the church when we read the letters of Paul, he seems to make it clear that he wrote as if the church were composed entirely of believers, which is why they are addressed as saints, meaning those whom God has especially chosen. The church is the body of Christ. It is the local collection of Christians committed to Christ and committed to one another. And so we have seen that this is what the church is, a local body of believers committed to Christ, covenanted together, committed to Christ, and committed to one another. Well, why join one? If that's what a church is, why join it? Much of church growth specialists would tell us to not invite people to join the church. But I'm not concerned with strategy strategies as much as I'm concerned with what the Bible teaches. Church membership is a crucial topic for understanding what Christ is calling us to as his disciples. Now, we understand that joining a church, it doesn't save you any more than our good works save us, or our education saves us, or our culture saves us, or our friendship saves us, or our financial contributions save us, or baptism will save us. None of those things save you. Non-Christians shouldn't seek to join a church, but to learn more about what it means to be a Christian. But what about those that are confessing Christians? What does it mean when we talk about living the Christian life? Is that something that we're supposed to kind of do alone, that we're supposed to uh, be on an island living the Christian life by ourselves? Is being a Christian the matter of, of being an individual or having certain spiritual disciplines that we work on all by ourselves? And so we make sure that we're honest at work and we don't cheat on our spouse and we don't, we don't uh, lie and we believe certain things to be true. Is that all there is to being a Christian? Is that, is that what the Bible teaches? This is what it is to be a Christian, perhaps? You would say no. The Christian life is to include other people as part of it. Who are those other people? Are they the people you work with? Are they the people that you have Bible study with? Are they the people that's in your little fellowship group? What group of Christians are we called to relate to as followers of Christ? The church is for everyone who's a Christian. It's not just some homogenous group centered around one subtask such as 
uh, we're the women's Bible study church, or we're the men's health club church, or we're the we're the this church. No, the Christian church is is not just for us and our friends; it's for all believers. And so, the responsibilities and duties of members of a church are very simply the responsibilities and duties of Christians. And so, church members, just like Christians, are to be baptized. And they're to regularly attend the Lord's Supper. We are to hear God's Word and be obedient to God's Word. We are to regularly fellowship with one another for mutual edification. We are to love God and love one another and those that are outside our fellowship. And we are to evidence the fruit of the Spirit that's found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. We are to worship God in all activities of our home and our work and our community and in our life. Now we must also understand that Christians have particular duties in relation to the congregation. Christianity is not just an individual matter, but it's a corporate matter. And the Christian life can only be fully realized in relationship to other people. So the most fundamental duty Christians have in relation to the congregation is the duty to regularly attend the gathering of the congregation. That's the most fundamental duty. You as a Christian, right? So you, you're a believer. Your most fundamental duty as a believer towards a congregation is for you to gather with that congregation when they meet. So generally, we, we talk about membership duties that can be divided into two categories. These are my duties or my responsibilities to other members, and these are my duties and responsibilities to the leadership or the pastors. The duties and responsibilities to church members uh, have towards one another summarized for us the life of the new society, which is known as the church. So as followers of Christ, Christians are obligated to love one another. You're obligated to do so. So if you say this morning, I'm a follower of Christ, your obligation, according to Scripture, John 13, 34, and 35, John 15, 12 through 17, Romans 12, 9 and 10, verse 13, uh, Romans, uh, Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Galatians 5, 14, Galatians 6, 10, Ephesians 1, 15, 1 Peter 1, 22, uh, 1 Peter 2, 17, 1 Peter 3, 8. We go on and on and on. Your duty is to love one another. Christians are members of one family and even members of one another, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. So Christian love obligates the members of the church to avoid anything that tends to cool that love. So by this love that Christians have for one another, the nature of the gospel is put on display. So your love for one another in the body of Christ puts the gospel on display for everybody to see. Not only do we seek love, but we're also obligated as church members to seek peace and unity within the congregation. Romans 12, 16, Romans 14, 19, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, 2 Corinthians 12, 20, Ephesians 4, 3 through 6, Philippians 2, 3. 
1 Thessalonians 5.13, and on and on we could go. Our duty is to seek peace and unity within the congregation. The desire for peace and unity should flow naturally from the obligation to love. Furthermore, if Christians share the same spirit and mind, then unity is a natural expression of the spirit. However, we have a problem, right? Because we're all a bunch of sinners. Therefore, to remain in unity, guess what it takes? Effort. It takes effort on our part, which is why we are told to stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, according to Philippians 1.27. Strife should be actively avoided, Proverbs 17.14, Matthew 5.19, 1 Corinthians 2.32, 1 Corinthians 11.16, and on and on we could go. Now here's what we must understand. Love is expressed and unity is cultivated when church members actively sympathize with one another. As Paul exhorts the congregation in Rome to do when he told them, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. In so doing, other duties will follow in your life and in the life of the church. You care for one another physically and spiritually. That's all through scripture. You watch over one another and you hold one another accountable. Again, all through scripture. You work to edify one another. Again, all through scripture. You bear with one another, including not suing one another. You pray for one another. You Keep away from those things that would destroy the church. You reject evaluating people by worldly standards. You contend together for the gospel. You, you are examples to one another. And now comes the hard part, though, right? So we have all these responsibilities throughout the entirety of Scripture to one another in the church. That as a body of believers, we love one another, we bear with one another, we take care of one another, we sympathize with one another, we mourn with one another, we pray with one another. All these things that we're supposed to do as part of loving each other as a body of believers, but then comes the hard part. Because we also have responsibility towards the leaders. Even as leaders have responsibility towards you. Paul said to the Corinthians that, Men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. 1 Corinthians 4.1 Leaders in the church should be respected, held in the highest regard, and honored as Scripture makes abundantly clear. If any Christian expects their pastor to fulfill biblical responsibilities, then church members must, must, make themselves known to him. They must regard him as a gift from Christ that has been sent to their church for their good. This is similar to how the apostles were regarded as delegates of Christ in Luke 10, 16 and 1 Corinthians 16, 10. The minister of God's word is a steward of God's household and an under-shepherd of God's flock. He serves eagerly and willingly. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. His reputation can be 
and should be defended. His word believed and his instructions obeyed unless it is a contradiction to the scripture or the fact that he has plainly distorted the truth. Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 22. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 19. The faithful pastor should be regarded in this way simply because he brings God's word to his people. He doesn't replace God's word. He brings God's word to the people, not his own word. Church members should remember their leaders and imitate their faith. 1 Corinthians 4.16, Philippians 3.17, Hebrews 13.7. Good preachers and teachers are worthy of being doubly honored, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 5.17, which includes material support because the word used for honor in 1 Timothy has a clear financial connotation to it. We could also see Acts 6, 4, 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 14, and Galatians 6, 6. Church members should also give themselves to the praying for their leaders and to assist them in every single way that they can possibly assist them. Ministers of God's word has been given the task of bringing his word to his people. This is why Paul said, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. So God, we're making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. First, or 2 Corinthians 5, 20. So I know people will say, well, I'm still not convinced of this whole idea of church members having responsibilities towards one another and responsibilities towards the leaders, and, and I don't really see the need to join a church that preaches the gospel models Christian living, so I'm going to give you five reasons why you need to join such a church. Five reasons why you need to join a church that preaches the gospel, models Christian living. Reason number one, to give assurance to yourself. You don't join a church to be saved, but certainly you join to help make certain that you are saved. Let's look at scripture to back this up. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. John 14, 21. John 15, 10. John 15, 14. John 13, 17. When we join the church... We ask our brothers and sisters to hold us accountable to live according to what we speak with our mouths. So we are asking them to encourage us and even remind us of the work that God is doing in our lives and sometimes challenge us when we're moving away from obedience to the Lord. Listen, it's easy to fool yourselves into thinking that we are Christians because we made some emotional one-time decision and joined a church. Maybe we've even been involved in a church for years without ever really knowing Christ. Do you have a relationship with Christ that changes your life or that has changed your life and the lives of those around you or not? 
How can you tell if you have that kind of relationship? Well, one of the ways that you can discover the truth about your own life is by asking yourself this question. So I understand that following Christ fundamentally involves how I treat other people, especially other people who are members of my church. So do I understand that? And have I coveted together to love them and to give myself to loving them? Or do you claim to know a love from God in Christ and live a life that contradicts that claim? Do you claim to know a love that knows no bounds and yet in your loving of others you set bounds? I will only go this far in loving this person and I will not go any further. You see, you set a bound. You see, a, a claim to love without a life that backs it up, that's a bad sign. Yet if you refuse to join a church, other Christians can't help you because you're sailing your own little ship, your own little way. And you will come to church when you like a sermon or when you like the music or when you like something else that the church does. And then you'll sell your little ship out wherever else you want to go when you want something else. Membership in the local church is to, intended to be a testimony to our membership in the universal church. Church membership does not save, but it does reflect your salvation. And if there is no reflection of your salvation, how can you be sure that you're really saved? John said it this way. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. 1 John 4.20. Being a member of a local church is intended to be a time when you know and are known by one another. We are to agree to help and encourage each other when we need to be reminded of God's work in our lives and when we need to be challenged about significant issues in our walk with Jesus Christ. Secondly, you join to evangelize the world. You become a member of a local church to effectively evangelize the world. When we act together, we can better spread the gospel at home and even abroad. We do this by sharing the good news with others and helping others to share that good news as well. A local church, by its nature, is a missionary organization. We back up this missionary endeavor by our actions. We show God's love by meeting the physical needs of orphans and widows and those that are disadvantaged. We promote the gospel by cooperating to take the gospel to those who have not heard it yet and by making the gospel visible to the world through how we live. Our lives, as imperfect as they are, can be used by God's Spirit to demonstrate to others the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get to be a part of God's plan and take his gospel to the world. If you've not joined in this great task, then I challenge you to do so. Whether here or someone else, somewhere else, be a member to take the gospel to the world. Number three, to expose false gospels. So when we interact with other Christians... We reveal to the world what Christianity really is. You see, many people think that Christians are just a self-righteous bunch of people who are worried that someone, somewhere, might be having some fun. And we believe in our own goodness. How do we combat that message? By having a church that's not marked by that attitude. Have you ever had anyone say, well... The church is just a bunch of sinners. Yeah, you're right. 
The difference is, though, we know we're a bunch of sinners. But those in the world, they don't know it. We know we need help. And we're totally dependent on God. And that we're saved by grace alone. The only thing that we bring to our salvation is our sin. God's love in Christ saves us. He came and lived the perfect life for us. And he died on the cross in the place of all who would ever trust in him. And he rose in victory over death and sin. Our faith in him alone is the instrument by which we are saved. And so I say, join a church that believers uh, that, that believes in that gospel and covenant together with them and make it known. Number four, we join a church to edify the church. We join to edify and build one another up. Joining a church helps us counter our sinful individualism. And it focuses us on the nature of Christianity. We are not called to live the Christian life on our own. We covenant together with other followers of Christ. We need to stop being selfish in our understanding of the Christian life. Being a Christian is not about you and those you're trying to reach. God also intends for you to be a committed part of helping to make disciples out of the flock of sheep that he has already saved. When you commit to a church, you're committing to a local body of believers that will try to help you work through the challenges and the problems that you have in your life. So, for example, if you find that you have a problem with the sin of gossip, then your brothers and sisters will try to talk to you about that sin. If you're discouraged and falling away, then they come alongside of you and they encourage you. They say, brother, sister, I'm, I'm concerned because you're, you're discouraged and I want to help you. I want to encourage you. The New Testament is clear that following Jesus is supposed to involve care and concern for one another. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. Though none of us are perfect, we should be committed to building each other up. And in so doing, we build up the church. Now, let me be clear. When you join the church, yes, you should bring benefits to the church. But guess what? You also bring problems. But that shouldn't stop you. That's why we go to church. I have problems. You have problems. All God's children have problems. However, we know Jesus is Lord and that his spirit within us has already begun to work on those problems in the church. And so we often see God will work on a problem. And we will see problem after problem in our life be overcome by God's Spirit. It does us no good to be self-centered as Christians. Because God is concerned with how we treat one another. And that includes others with whom you have absolutely nothing in common with except Jesus Christ. That's why we need to invest our lives in others and allow others to invest their lives in us. Being a member of a church should cause us to have a, have a committed concern for one another. Our growth as Christians is not a matter of individual concern, but a matter of the whole church. Listen to how many times Hebrews 10, 19-25 says, Let us, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water let us hold unswervingly 
to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Church membership is our opportunity to love one another. And when, and when we... Uh, identify ourselves with a church we let the pastor and other members know that we intend to be committed to that church committed in attendance committed in giving committed in prayer committed in service we allow other believers in the church to have greater expectations of us in these areas and we make it known that we are responsible to our local church we assure the church of our commitment to christ in serving them and we call for their commitment to us and serve us and encourage us as well when we join the church it is increase our sense of ownership in the world of the church and of its community its budget and its goals we move from being pampered consumers to joyous proprietors we stop arriving late and complaining that we don't get exactly what we want instead we arrive early and we try to help others that they have need of and we must stop viewing membership as some sort of loose little affiliation with the church and more of a regular responsibility towards the church we must become involved in one another's lives for the purpose and the sake of the gospel of jesus christ So let me ask you this morning, do you love the people of God? Or do you just feel well disposed towards them? Do you actually and actively give to others? Do you use your hands for them? Your money for them? Your lips for them? In the church, discipleship is both individual and corporate as we follow Christ and help others along the way. We can hold one another accountable in times of temptation. We can study God's word together to prepare for spiritual warfare. We can sing God's praises together and pray together. We can encourage each other's joys and share each other's burdens. Number five, we glorify God. We become a member to glorify God. You should join a church... For the glory of God. The way we live our lives brings glory to God. Listen to what Peter wrote. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Peter knew the teachings of his master, Jesus. It was Jesus who said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. In Matthew 5, 16. God will get the glory for our good deeds. If that is true of us individually, that is also true of us as a group of Christians. God intends that the way we love one another will identify us as followers of Christ. We get this from Jesus' own words in John 13. A new command I give to you, love one another. Even as I have loved you, you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. Our lives together in community are to mark us as, as his and we are to bring him praise and bring him glory. If Jesus said he will build his church, then should we also be committed to building his church most christians who attend even a god-centered bible preaching church will feel frustration at some point 
but we must consider the obligations and opportunities of church membership. Our basis as a congregation must be in being more than in doing. If you join a church, you're not included merely for a function that you perform, but you are adopted into a family. And and the relationship that you are committing yourself to will bring God glory. That is why, if you're a Christian, you should join a church. But what does this mean? What does this mean? Lastly, this morning, I want to share with you what does church membership entail? At its core, church membership entails a life of repentance and belief. God has established the church to be a community. Those that have been born again, His grace in our life grants us repentance and faith. And it's signaled by two things. First is an action. It's baptism. The Bible presents baptism as the first step of a new Christian. The New Testament assumes all Christians have been baptized. Romans chapter 6, Paul assumes that Christians that he is writing to have been baptized. This is a universal practice that is rooted in the commands of Christ recorded for us in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, and is written about throughout the New Testament. To reject baptism or any other clear biblical command is is to reject membership among Christ's disciples, among those who follow his commands. So we demonstrate that we've been granted repentance and faith First, by an action, baptism. So we we say to everybody, hey, I have repented and I trust in Christ and this is my baptism, my action to prove to you that what I said is, is true. So that's why you get baptized. That's number one. Number two, in writing, by signing a statement of faith in a church covenant, Now, I know this is going to be difficult for some of you because you're going to say, well, I have never signed a statement of faith or a church covenant, nor does our church at the moment ask anyone to do so, and I ain't going to do it. Notice I said at the moment. There are many Baptists and other evangelical churches that express a commitment to God and to each other in writing by signing a church covenant. This is an agreement that members make with each other and with God to live out the Christian life together in a local church. Some of you may be surprised to know that it was a common practice to sign a church covenant and that it simply fell out of practice in the middle decades of the 20th century. Now I know the question you may ask is, does our church have a covenant? The answer to that question is yes. I've included it copy of it in our bulletin. Now, you may be surprised. You may have never seen our church covenant. You may have never laid eyes on our church covenant, and you definitely never signed it because we don't ask anybody to sign it. So, yes, we have a covenant. The follow-up question is, do you know what it says? Just out of curiosity, how many of you read it before this morning? One person. Two people. Thank you. (laughs) I didn't read it till this week. And I've been the pastor six years. I didn't even know it existed.
one more question. Is our current church covenant informed by Scripture? And is Scripture used as a proof for the covenant? The answer is some of it. Here's my rub. As a church, we essentially have nothing to hold anyone accountable to. Nothing. Because we don't ask our members to make a commitment to covenant together for a common practice or purpose. We don't ask that of anybody. We don't say, hey, covenant together with us. Here's, here's what we believe. Here's what we're going to hold one another. This is what we hold one another accountable to. That's the purpose of a covenant. We covenant together to say these things. And so when you step out of line of the covenant or, and you need encouragement, we come and encourage you. Or when you step out of line of the covenant and you need someone to come and bring some, some discipline and, and some instruction to say, Hey, brother. Hey, sister. I have grave concern because this is what you said, but this is what you're doing. And so now I have concern for what's going on. We have no way of doing that at all. We can say, I'm concerned, big whoop-de-doo. What good's it do us? You haven't said that, hey, this is the standard I'm going to be held to. Furthermore, the covenant we currently have has issues. They are tertiary issues. But there are issues that your own pastor at times has not followed. So imagine my surprise when I'm reading our church covenant and I go, oh, I broke this. I've broken this. And guess what? Jesus didn't even follow it. That's a problem. Don't you think that's a problem when we say, hey, here's a standard we, we, we have. But Jesus doesn't follow it, but I want you. So Jesus, if we took our current covenant and said, you've got to sign it to be a member, Jesus couldn't be a member of our church. I think that's a problem. I want to share with you at least five things that we should be teaching. And they're, they're not real long, so don't go into panic. I know you guys are like, oh, man, we're going to be here another hour. Five things... We should be teaching when it comes to our responsibilities of church membership. Number one, all five of these should be addressed in any church covenant, and they are addressed in the covenant that I will eventually propose to us. Number one, attend services regularly. Hebrews 10.25 makes it clear that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, which means that we should attend the weekly meetings of the church. Here, we gather on Sunday morning for small groups and for worship. And during the school year, we gather on Wednesdays to go deeper in our faith. We should be asking our membership to regularly attend the service. Now, does that mean if you miss a Sunday, we're going to come and hunt you down? No. What if you miss two Sundays? You're probably at that point going to receive a note from me. Some of you may have gotten a note from me before because you missed a couple Sundays and I noticed you were gone. And I thought maybe you was mad at me or something. I'm like, hey, where are you? Sometimes I've even called you. You mad at me? No, I don't usually do that. I don't call and say, are you mad at me? I just call and say, hey, how's things going? Are you okay? That sort of thing. And no, don't say, I'm going to miss church so I get a call from the pastor. Don't do that. But we should ask our people to attend regularly. Number two, 
attend communion particularly. In Luke 22, 19, Christ commands his disciples to remember and proclaim his death by taking together regularly what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. Here we do it every time we have a fifth Sunday, we have communion, as well as on Christmas Eve and Good Friday. Back in the day, some churches would exclude you from membership if you missed communion without a clear excuse. So you missed communion and you didn't have an excuse. You're like, you're done. We don't do that. But let me say that communion should be vitally important to you. That if you do miss, you should have a clear excuse. Like, I just could not be here no matter what. Number three, attend members' meetings consistently. We are a congregational church, which means that our members' meetings are important. They should be important in our lives together as a church. It's a time that we make decisions together, major decisions, and a way for us to fulfill our Matthew 18 duties. Number four, we pray regularly. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Listen, you can grab a membership directory and you can use it as a prayer list. Number five, we give regularly. Scripture clearly gives instructions about giving. Solomon taught that we should honor the Lord with our wealth and with the first fruits of our crop. And Jesus taught his disciples, give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. These five responsibilities are just some of what it means to be a member of a church. Some people think that having expectations will make others feel excluded. I think they help. By having expectations, it means if you're a member, you are treated as someone who is converted and knows Christ as your Savior. It means that we assume you love God and that you hate sin. It means that you live accordingly to your love for God, and we want to help you live that out in your life. This is where many churches compromise. They have no expectations of their membership, and so they can gain Members, but in so doing, they usually doom themselves to losing the gospel and eventually becoming extinct. When churches have unconverted members, the gospel gets obscured. If the gospel is downplayed or confused, the lifeblood of the church is cut off and it will lose any distinction from the unbelieving world. If the salt is no longer salty, it's good for nothing, the scripture says. So here's the question. Just how exclusive should our churches be? Should we change our meeting times or sermon length or style of music for unbelievers that we want to reach? How much of our gathering together is for the sake of those who are not Christians? Do we understand meeting in terms of evangelism of our, uh, uh, or for the building up of members in the church? Just how inclusive should the church be? I think the best question is how exclusive should we be? It gets to the point quicker. I try to address non-believers in my sermons weekly. I believe the church serves the non-believers best when they make it clear that there is a difference between a believer and a non-believer. As a church, we should want people to enjoy our people. 
As a church, we should want people to enjoy the friendliness of our church and the helpfulness of our church. And no, there's a difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. Some would say you need to belong before you believe. I would say that we should be welcoming and friendly with non-believers and that they are welcome to attend and we should invite them deeper into our lives. However, we must not ever, ever, ever tell them the great theological lie that they belong because they don't. In the most profound sense, unbelievers do not belong. And we serve them well if we make it clear. Are they welcome to come? Sure. But they don't belong as members of our church because they're not going to be members of heaven until they place their faith in Jesus Christ. We should show them that there's something more than just a vague sense of the presence of God. So let me close this out. If the church is just a building, then we're all bricks in it. If the church is a body, then we're its members. If the church is a household of faith, then we are part of that household. Sheep belong to a flock. Branches belong to a vine. Biblically, if we are Christians, we must be members of a church. Our membership should not be based on a statement that we once made or an affection that we have towards a familiar place. It must be a reflection of a living commitment or it's worthless. Perhaps that's the issue in many churches today. Membership has become worthless and meaningless. And worse than that, it's dangerous. You see, uninvolved members of the covenant community confuse both real members and non-Christians about what it means to be a Christian. Active members do no favors to those who are voluntarily inactive when all when we allow them to remain members. When somebody becomes voluntarily inactive of the church and we say, yeah, you can still be a member, we have to understand that we are giving a corporate endorsement of their salvation. Let me ask you this. How can you testify as a church that someone is faithfully running the race that God has set before them? How can you faithfully testify, yes, I know this person is a believer and a follower of Christ if they are invisible? How do you know? The answer is, you don't. If they are never here, if they're left out of our company, and they've not gone on to any other Bible-believing church, what evidence do we have that they were ever truly a part of us? Now, do we, do we not really know if they, if they are not a believer? No, we don't really know that, but we also can't affirm it. We do not need to go to them and say, Hey, we know you're going to hell because you've been missing church. But neither can we go to them and say, hey, I know you're going to heaven. Because we don't. Why? Because they are not attached to the body of a covenant community. They're attached in 
in form, but they're not attached by attendance. I pray that by God's grace, we will see church membership become more meaningful, and that all who are members in the, in the name will be members in fact, that members will renew a commitment to the life of our church, that new members would be instructed in the faith, and that our number in attendance would be greater than our number of members. Pray with me that church membership will come to mean something more than it currently does, and that we can better know those for whom we are responsible for as a church. What do you think it does to your pastor when he has 180 members of a church and 120 of them he's never ever seen? But he's responsible for them. They're members. How do I challenge them? We should not allow people to keep church membership for sentimental reasons. Basically, this type of membership is not membership at all. In our old church covenant and in the one that I've recently written, we pledge that we will, when we move from this place as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this conviction and the principles of God's word. We need people to covenant together with us. It's a healthy part of discipleship in our current age. Church membership being means being incorporated in practical ways in the body of Christ. It means that we go together um, as we reach the loss in our world to be a healthy church. We have to have biblical understanding of membership. It should have an outward reflection of an inward love for Christ. And our greatest loves are rarely spontaneous. They are planned, premeditated, and characterized by commitment. Ephesians 5.25 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Acts 20.28 reminds us that he bought the church with his own blood. If you are a follower of Christ, you will love the church because he gave himself for it and bought it. So don't just come to church, though you should attend. But I challenge you, join the church. Link arms. Join a church so that non-Christians will hear and see the gospel so that weak Christians will be cared for. Those strong Christians will channel their energies in a good way. That church leaders will be encouraged so that God will be glorified. Christians in America used to know all this but they don't know it anymore. Christians shifted their energies away from keeping their own churches pure to trying to purify their communities and everything became social and by the time of the 20s and 30s Evangelicals learned about the fickleness of our world through the Scopes trial and the repeal of prohibition. And fundamentalists then withdrew and said, said we're going to preserve, uh, preserve the gospel and all the social involvement of the previous decades. The gospel had not been lost, but the church nearly was lost. In this century, by and large, church and people have become individuals. And individualism is an extreme focus. The church is the greatest tool that God can use for evangelism, discipleship, missions, and more. May we love one another. May God's love for the world once again be visible through the love that we have for one another. And may we fear not uniting together in a covenant community where we hold one another accountable and say I'm a member of that church and they hold me accountable and they love me well and they care for me intentionally and I care for them may the day of us going into the community and hearing people say oh I'm a member of that church and they never attend 
be over. May we covenant together. Let us close with prayer.